Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Amen, amen, amen. Good morning, North family. How are you? It's good to see you, good to see you, all the guests. We're so grateful that you chose to be with us today. We hope that you are encouraged by your time together. What's one of the earliest moments you can remember learning that you can't always trust people, that you can't always believe what they say or uh, take you know, stock in what they are offering? And what did that lesson cost you? So my early childhood was on uh, the southern California coast of Santa Cruz, was raised there, uh, spent many hours uh, at the boardwalk and all the tide pools and all of that, uh, the beaches of Santa Cruz. And around Easter, a lot of times what they would do is they would have this massive Easter egg hunt. And so they would take all these plastic eggs and fill them with chocolate and candy and money and uh, tokens to the arcade game and tickets to rides. And they would, they would bury them in the sand and then rope off of this massive area and then just sick us kids loose with our baskets, right? And so I would go, and we'd all be, looked like a bunch of dogs digging holes in the ground, right? We're all like looking in the ground, looking for these eggs. And I, I remember that day, I found about eight to 10 eggs, a bunch of goodies in them, put them, put them in my basket, and was walking around. And this other kid who was a little older came up, and he had about 20 to 25 eggs in his basket. He said, hey, you want to trade? I'm like, that's a no-brainer, buddy. I've got eight to 10 eggs, you got like 20, 25 eggs. What a nice guy, you know? And so I said, sure. So I gave him my basket, and he gave me his basket. And I got, you know, I sat down, and, and I went to open up my eggs, and as I opened up all the eggs in his basket, guess what? They were empty. He had already taken everything out. I totally got like, you know, I mean, I thought, man, what a nice guy. I totally believed that he was going to give me something good. And instead of all the treats, I got an empty egg. And I learned really quickly. I was very gullible. Like, it was a bummer that I got ripped off, but it was partly my fault because I was gullible. I should have known. Like, something inside should have, like, you know, picked up on, eh, there's something fishy here, but I didn't. I was just so enamored by what I could get that I wasn't really paying attention to the fact that I was about to get ripped off. Think about the times you've been gullible. Maybe, uh, you know, it wasn't a plastic egg, but you were persuaded into a false situation. And you weren't discerning enough to see the falsehood that was being presented to you. And it cost you. Maybe it cost you financially. Maybe it cost you emotionally. Maybe it cost you relationally. Like, you know, obviously, lose, losing, you know, candy and prizes and egg is one thing. It was a bummer. Uh, taking a hit financially, emotionally, relationally, relationally, that's very painful. But one area we never want to lose discernment, one area we never want to be gullible in is when it comes to our spiritual beliefs. Losing candy, losing a dear relationship, those, those things hurt, they can be important. But when you're talking about your eternity, when you're talking about the destination of your soul, when you're talking about living the full life that God has planned for you, a life of thriving, of intimacy, of empowerment by God, and you forfeit that because you were gullible and you weren't spiritually discerning, that's a whole nother issue. 
And as we return to our fall teaching series in our Bibles, in the book of Galatians, I invite you to open up your Bibles now, we're going to continue to see a servant of God, the Apostle Paul, address early Christians in ancient Greece, in the area of Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. And out of love for them and out of concern for them, he's pointing out that they were being spiritually gullible. They were buying into false teaching that had infected their community. And it's as if they had received an egg that gave them all that they needed, and they were trading and forfeiting that for something else, a false teaching that held nothing for them. And so they had been made right with God. They had been forgiven. They had received grace. But now these, this group called the Judaizers were coming in and sabotaging that teaching by saying they had to have more than just a relationship with Christ, more than just faith, more than just grace. They had to work. They had to become Jewish. They had to go through the rituals, the practices, all those things. And they were being spiritually gullible and buying into it. The idea I want us to focus on today is this. Every Christ follower can use spiritual discernment to identify false beliefs because God has given us the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. Let's just get this on the table. There are hundreds, maybe thousands of beliefs out there when it comes to religion and spirituality, supernatural. Do not be gullible to think that they're all accurate. It's just this you know, smorgasbord. It's just this buffet. You get to pick what you want, and it's all right. God's made it very clear in his word. He's given us a supernatural revelation of what the true faith, the true gospel is. And so we don't want to be spiritually gullible and drift away from that. And so let's continue in our series in the book of Galatians. Open up your Bibles to the book of Galatians. If you do not own a Bible, you don't actually have a Bible, we'd love to give you one as a gift, like a happy fall to you, present, whatever. Uh, there's these blue Bibles out at the Info Center. You can get them on your way out, free as a gift to you. You can also download Bible apps. There's the U version, and there's ESV, and there's a bunch of um, versions of the Bibles you can download to your device if you want that. Now, before we really, uh, actually, let's just dive in. Let's read Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 14 as we start off our time this morning. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentile by faith. Preached the gospel beforehand so to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written by the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. 
Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Curses everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through, what's the last word? Faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. And God, as we fill this room coming from different walks of life, different upbringings, different spiritual influences, different places in our spiritual journey, pray that the truth of your word would speak to our minds and hearts today, that you would call us through the power of your spirit to a place of obedience, a place of understanding, a place of joy, a place of um, thriving, because we were here together sharing in your word. God, for those who do not know you yet as Savior, God, that you would just encourage them to take a step toward Jesus, maybe even fully embrace Jesus today. We ask this in Jesus' name. We all said together, amen. Before we want to go any further, I want to just come back to clarifying some terms that we read and that we've been hearing over and over again through the book of Galatians. Some of you, if you've been tracking almost week by week, you're like, man, it feels like it's redundant. It feels like it's repetitive. Repetition is good for us. Paul was feeling the need to be repetitious because the, the Galatians were being stubborn and gullible, right? So let's just re- recap a couple key words. One is the word gospel. This is the good news of God's redemption of sinful humanity through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think of free gift. That word was used one time in that text we just read. Uh, the word justification. This is God's gracious act in declaring a repentant sinner to be innocent and righteous. Think being made right with God. One little word trick that helps you with justified is as just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. Okay, that word was used twice in that text we just read. Faith. Faith is belief with such confidence and certainty that commitment and trust are demonstrated without depending on the senses. And so when you think faith, think believing and receiving. That word was used nine times in the text we just read. The word law, otherwise known as the Mosaic Law and the Torah. These are hundreds of commandments given by God regarding moral, social, and worshipful behavior. Uh, The Ten Commandments are included in the law. They're not all of the law, but they're included in the law. And these are found in the first five books of the Bible. You need to think doing and earning when you think law. That word was used seven times in the text we just read. And then there's the word spirit with a capital S. This is the Holy Spirit of the living God, the third distinct person of the one triune God who is co-eternal and co-equal with God the Father and God the Son. Think God's presence dwelling in a follower of Christ. This word was used four times in the text that we just read. So those are key words that kind of help us frame in. And as I want to share with you just some points that I think we can pull from the text, I want to, I want to utilize a lesson that I learned from my friends in Ohio. We lived in Ohio for 12 and a half years. Um, in our first few months there, as I learned that a lot of people went to Ohio State, I made the mistake one time of saying, oh, you went to the Ohio State. To which they replied back, no, it's the Ohio State. Like, that's a thing there, right? The Ohio State. So in looking at what we're about to unpack here, I think what we can glean is this lesson, that we can be spiritually discerning because we have the crucified Savior. 
That will help us be spiritually discerning. Look at Galatians 3 again, the back half. It says, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Paul references God's meaning for salvation. That is, the crucifixion of Christ as our sin substitute, as that verse talks about. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed. Paul didn't mean, because this was much later than the resurrection and the crucifixion, he's not saying you saw it with your own eyes, because they're in Asia Minor. It's not likely they were in Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion of Christ. But what he means by that is that the truth of Jesus and the reality of his crucifixion was laid out to them publicly and clearly. And that Paul had painted such a vivid picture of Christ's sacrificial death that their minds could see it and understand it. It's the same for us. When we are awakened to the reality that once again, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, the life we could never live, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the grave after being buried. Uh, this is a vivid picture in our mind. There's only one person who did that, and there's only one person who could do that for humanity. That's Christ. And the exclusivity of Christ as God's Savior is a challenging belief for some people to embrace. But just because it's challenging or sometimes even um, uncomfortable, that God has made it clear there's only one way to him, not multiple ways to him, that might be uncomfortable, but that doesn't make it untrue. Jesus said himself, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus didn't say, I'm one of the ways. He didn't say, I'll show you the way. He said, I what? Am the way. And every time I have a conversation with someone who struggles with the exclusivity of Christ, I say, you actually don't struggle with exclusivity at all. For example, I'm imagining right now most of you have a key to your house. It might be the only key that fits your door. You have no problem with one key getting into your house. But for some reason, God doesn't have the right to have one key into his house. That's a little bizarre. That's a little backwards. If you are diagnosed with a condition and you go to the doctor and they say, you, get, you have one cure. This treatment, this procedure is the only way you will live. You're not going to go, that's really narrow-minded, doctor. That's just, you're just not, you're not very inclusive, are you? You're like, if that's all it takes, then hit me. Because I need more years with my family. I want more years with this life. But for some reason, when God says, oh, oh, there's one way into my heaven. There's one way for forgiveness. Like, well, time out. That, look, we're, we, don't, we don't really have a problem with exclusivity. We just don't like God having exclusivity. We have a belief in the one key to heaven, the one way to be forgiven. And when you know the Savior and you understand what he did for you and what he did for us, that increases our spiritual awareness and we become less gullible. History is full of countless of religious leaders, false messiahs, zealous martyrs, charismatic teachers, but not one of them were God in the flesh. None of them lived a sinless and perfect life. Only Jesus did. Therefore, only his death on the cross has the power and has the authority to make people right with God and provide forgiveness for humanity. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, 
Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. That's quoted from Deuteronomy 21-23. Anyone who's crucified, in this case with Christ, it's not that the person was cursed and that's why they were hung. It's that the crucifixion was a curse. Trying to live a perfectly moral life, which is impossible, is a curse. And so Jesus took the curse upon himself on the cross. We are all cursed, we are all sinful, we are all broken because we rebel against God. And we, we don't want to be gullible to buy into, like, if I'm just a good enough person, I'll make it. I can be made right with God. The, the golden scales in the sky argument where God's going to take my good and my bad and which one weighs the heaviest is going to determine my eternity. That's not a biblical teaching. And just in case some of us feel the temptation to pat ourselves on the back because we're such a good person, let's just review this really fast. How many lies does it take to make you a liar? One. How many times do you have to take something that's not yours to be a thief? One time. How many times do you have to cheat before you're a cheater? One time. So look, if we're going to be honest and transparent, self-included, we're all a bunch of cheaters, liars, and thieves but I'm a good person. Good luck with that one. That's the curse of the law. We can't live a morally perfect life. The Ten Commandments, it's not really just a checklist, like, okay, if I live by the Ten Commandments, I'll be fine. The the Ten Commandments are a mirror to show us we can't do it. Some of you are like, I don't know, I'm doing pretty good. Okay, let's just start with thou shalt not covet. Seriously? You've never looked at something someone else has had and said, ooh, I want that. There's been no car, house, outfit, spouse. <laughs> Man, I wish I had a husband like that guy, that girl. I wish I, had a, I wish I had a husband like that girl. No. Kids, family. Look, we can't even get past coveting. That's one strike, right? How many times do you have to covet before you're a coveter? <laughs> what? That's the curse. Jesus became the curse in our place. No one else did that. No one else can do that. So when we look at the cross, we see the power of God, the love of God, the freedom of God given to us as an invitation to receive. And once you understand that and you're awakened to that, you start to become much more spiritually discerning and a lot less spiritually gullible in our place because that's the gospel. Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He pleaded our case. He rights our wrongs. He breaks our chains. He overcomes death and sin, and he gives us a life to live that we could never live on our own. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the crucified Savior. John Stott was a Bible scholar and world leader in Christian evangelism and missions, he said, the gospel is not good advice to men, but good news about Christ. It's not an invitation to to us to do anything, but a declaration of what God has done. Not a demand, but an offer. And so I hope all of us have come to that place where you clearly understand this, you believe God at his word on this issue, You're no longer living by law. You're not being gullible and and believing a false teaching, but you're trusting what Christ has done. You're not trying to add to it. So seeing, 
Understanding and believing what our crucified Savior has done helps us to be spiritually discerning. So, we can be spiritually discerning because we have the crucified Savior. We can also be spiritually discerning because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Look again through Galatians 3. Did you pick up on all the references to the Holy Spirit of God? Galatians 3, 2-3. Paul says, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Like These are hard words Paul's using. Like he's, he's not being like super sensitive right here. Are you being foolish that having begun in the Spirit, now you're trying to perfect it in the flesh? Galatians 3, 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles like we just sang about among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Galatians 3, 14, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. When you admit that you're a sinner, you trust, you turn from trusting in yourself or anyone else and turn to Christ and believe in his life, death, resurrection for forgiveness of sins and to be made right with God. When that happens, the Holy Spirit of the living God comes to indwell you, live inside you, game changer. And the Holy Spirit's not going to possess you and take you over and impose his will on you. God's a gentleman. He says, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. He's going to guide you, lead you, direct you. He's going to give you nudges. I feel the Holy Spirit all the time. A lot of you can relate to this when he nudges me. He'll nudge me to do something that scares me or I don't want to do. Right? Sometimes you know that's the Lord. He's going, you need to do this. You're like, can we have a conversation about this? He's like, no. This is what I want you to do. He's like, ugh. So do I, do I follow the Spirit or not? Or he'll nudge me to stop doing or to not do something maybe I want to do. But Lord, he's like, don't do it. You're not going to like the outcome. Looks like a win right now. Feels good right now. But trust me, it's going to hurt in the end. But so the Holy Spirit nudges. Did he give you the Holy Spirit because you earned the Holy Spirit? Through works? No. Uh-uh. It's through faith. So salvation and the Holy Spirit, and the fuller Christian life are a result of hearing and believing, not doing and earning. Salvation and the Holy Spirit are received, not achieved. And once you have the Holy Spirit, you become more discerning. This is important, because if we're not careful, we're going to embrace the subtle temptation to embrace salvation by faith alone, yet try to live our lives in flesh alone. Let me say that again. If we're not careful, we're going to give in to the temptation to say, oh yeah, yeah, I received salvation by faith alone, but now I'm going to live the rest of my Christian life in flesh alone. My ideas, my impulses, my desires, my emotions are going to drive the rest of my life, but Jesus, thanks for dying. I, thanks for that, I got the rest. I'm going to say a prayer, give my life to you, but then... I'm just going to do me. No. You have the Holy Spirit of God that we surrender to who gives you the ability beyond your ability, wisdom beyond your wisdom, courage beyond your courage to experience the fuller Christ-centered life that God has for us. What I love about this understanding is that Jesus loved you so much that he he didn't just die for you 2,000 years ago. He wants to live in you today. 
so many Christians aren't grabbing a hold of that. It's like, oh yeah, that event 2,000 years ago, I give a head nod to that event. I believe that event happened. It can change my life and the trajectory of my life. But they neglect to realize once you believe that fully, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you. Every day drives your life. I am a different man. I'm a different husband. I'm a different father. I'm a different friend. I'm a different pastor. When I don't surrender to the Spirit, and I am not good on my own. Can anyone else say, I totally understand what you're talking about? <laughs> but when we surrender to the Spirit, that's where it's at. A great illustration for me is sailing. Uh, I, I have not done a lot of sailing. I've been on some sailboats. It's a fascinating experience to me. But if there's something mesmerizing about watching a sailboat cut across the water. If you've ever been on a bluff overlooking a body of water and you see sailboats out there, and you see them cutting through the water. It's fascinating because all it is is this piece of material catching the wind and the wind carrying it. It's fascinating that, that vessels only went by sails for so many years before we ever had engines. And so when we come to faith in Christ, what happens is like the Lord says, look, the, the, the theology, the understanding, everything, your profession of faith, is like you've raised the sail, and now the Holy Spirit wants to come and fill the sail and drive your life. And what the Galatians were being persuaded to do by the Judaizers was bring the sail down and go, get out your oars, let's do this. Works, circumcision, law, dietary, things like that. And we're like, that's not very intelligent. Well, guess what we do? God says, I've given you the Holy Spirit. Just raise the sail. Let him drive your life. We're like, no. And then we're like, we get the oars out. Like, I'm just going to do good works. I'm going to let my emotions do it. Uh, no, what's that other person have to say on the matter? I'm going to read a bunch of books. And like, we try to do it. Oh, holy smokes, if some of you go to Hawaii, please don't try to row your way to Hawaii. It's not going to work. Your chances are better with a sailboat, seriously. That's the Holy Spirit life. And when you surrender to the Holy Spirit, he, he gives you a discernment beyond your ability. And you're not spiritually gullible when you're surrendering to the Holy Spirit's leading. And some of you are like, well, how, how, do I, how do I keep that sail hoisted up? How do, I, how do I keep grabbing the Holy Spirit? Let me just give you some ideas of how we do that. The spiritual disciplines really help us. Things like solitude, quiet, worship through music, spending regular time life-giving time in God's Word with Him, and prayer, confessing sin regularly to the Lord, seeking simplicity, sometimes fasting, going without food, and replacing food with prayer. Talk about, you want to pray more? Take food out of your life, and every time you're hungry, pray. Some of you are like, dang, I'll be praying a lot. Fasting is one of the ways. Walk in gratitude to God. Rest in the Lord. Abide in the Lord. Walk with Him, trust Him, obey Him, surrender your fears and worries to Him. These are the ways that we keep that sail unfurled to catch the Holy Spirit so He can drive our life. But he's given the Holy Spirit through faith. And so we come to faith in Christ through the Spirit's power, and we grow in Christ through the Spirit's power. The Holy Spirit of God loves us, He lives in us, and He helps us to be spiritually discerning. 
So we can be spiritually discerning because we have the crucified Savior. We have the indwelling Spirit. And we can also become spiritually discerning because we have the true faith and gospel. I am very aware that we are not the only ones that claim to have the truth and the gospel. The bottom line is the truth and the gospel are in here. (laughs) This is where it's at. We as followers of Christ have it because we believe this book. Once you change this book or get rid of this book, you're no longer operating off the truth. Sure, a truth, one of the truths, but you're not operating off the truth, the word of God, the gospel. But we can be more discerning because we do have that. Look at Galatians 3, 1 again. Look at the language that Paul's using with the Galatians. He says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? The Greek word there is a fascinating word. It's baskeno. It means to charm. It means to entice and lure away. The Galatians had become fascinated with false teaching of the Judaizers. And they were seduced and enticed away from the true gospel toward a false gospel. He says, oh foolish Galatians, strong language. He's basically saying, what are you Galatians doing you are being so foolish you are trading what was good for something that's not something that was freeing to something that's enslaving you and paul wasn't just upset with those teaching falsehood he was stunned that the galatians being so gullible and easily fooled were being swayed he wasn't critiquing or uh, criticizing their intelligence He was criticizing their lack of discernment. And he was calling them back to true north. He was calling them back to the gospel, the truth that God had revealed. And then he brings out the big guns with all the people that were Jewish in nature, that were in his audience, those who saw the contrast between the the Jews and the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And so he brings out the big gun arguments for all those um, who were struggling and his critics who said it's all about being a child of Abraham by lineage or by practice. He says, oh, you want to talk about Abraham? He goes, all right, let's talk about Abraham. Galatians 3, 6 through 9. Just as Abraham, what are the next two words, by the way? Help me. Say them loudly. Believed God. Just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Not your lineage, not your traditions, but those of faith. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Did you hear the word faith, 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 faith? Not works, not law, not ancestry. You want to be a child of Abraham, a son of Abraham? Then you just have to have the same faith that he had. Galatians 3.11 says, Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And so he's putting Abraham forward as exhibit A. He says, Father of the Jewish nation, the one whom God promised both physical offspring, the Jews, and spiritual offspring, the, uh, the Gentiles. They're all going to be his children through faith in the Lord. 
And Abraham was made righteous before the eyes of God, not through works, not through the Jewish law, which would hard to do, by the way. Some people are like, well, Abraham was all about the law. The law came 430 years later. The Mosaic law was 430 years after Abraham. So it was the promise, the law, and return back to the promise, and the law was a reflection of how we needed the promise. And there's a, there's a phrase here, there was a reason I said, what does it say, those two words? It says, Abraham believed God. It did not say, Abraham believed in God. Huge distinction. We all know people say, I think I'm good because I believe in God. Well, just as the book of James says, you know what? The devil believes in God. The demons believe there's a God. So right there, the profession, like, well, I believe there's a God out there, is not good enough. There's something way more intense and specific that's needed. It says Abraham believed God. God said, this is what I'm going to do. And Abraham said, I believe in what you're saying. I believe you. When your spouse, when your children, when your friends say something, do you believe them? Abraham believed God, believed God's promise. And part of that promise was one day you're going to have a unique descendant come from you who's going to bless the entire world. It was the prophecy of the Christ, the Messiah, who would come from Abraham. And one of the big struggles people look at, like, well, how how did people come to know the Lord, get saved, forgiven, before Jesus was born? It's really the same way once after Jesus was born. In the Old Testament, they believed the promise that was to come. They believed in the Messiah that was coming. They still believed in the Lord and his promise on the front end. Now we are on the back end looking back at the same Savior. We just have more clarity. We have more details. We have more information. But before Jesus was born and after Jesus was born, both sides of the covenant, people were still looking to the Messiah. Trusting God's promised one. It's the same. And so from cover to cover of the Bible, there's one main character. There's one hero, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And what's so beautiful about that is in an ever-changing world, God has given us a never-changing gospel. Amen? In an ever-changing world, God has given us a never-changing gospel. John Stott again said this, the law requires works of human achievement. The gospel requires faith in Christ's achievement. The law makes demands and bids us to obey. The gospel brings us promises and bids us to believe. So different. Completely different operating system. Now, what do we do with that? Because like, all right, Chad, this is great. We've been teaching on Galatians. We get it. The Galatians were being tempted by the Judaizers to do the dietary laws and the guys got to get circumcised and they got to, you know, do the festivals. But look, man, 2023, almost 2024, that's not my issue. No. Some of us may have come from a religious background where law is still a temptation. We're still, we're still being spiritually gullible and persuaded toward legalism and law. But more of our concern where the time that we live in is something called antinomianism. You're like, okay, uh, that's a you know, $20 theological word we've got to throw out today, right? 
Antinomianism is a very important word for us to understand. Anti means no. Namas means law. Antinomianism means we're going to live like there's no law at all. And so you have legalism on one extreme. You're going to live and die by the law, and if you don't, God's going to get you. And then you have antinomianism on the other extreme. No, 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 no. Live like there's no law. Once Jesus died in Rome, it's like, dude, you do you. Whatever makes you happy, God's thumbs up. You can believe what you want, do what you want, no accountability. God doesn't care. It's super inclusive. He gives everybody a pass. We're all good. That's what we have to be cautious of, correct? And so we have legalism and we have antinomianism on both sides, and they're both extremely wrong and dangerous. Antinomianism is contrary to everything the Bible teaches. God expects us to live a life of morality because we love the Lord, not to be accepted by the Lord. He expects us to live lives of integrity and love. Jesus Christ freed us from the burden commands of the Old Testament law, but it's not a license to sin. Consider these biblical cautions. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Sounds like a lot of today's teaching, doesn't it? Who put darkness for light and light for darkness and put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You know you are dealing with the flesh. You know you are dealing with antinomianism when people are calling sinful and moral and ludicrous behaviors and philosophies a good thing. When they're trying to persuade you that something inside of you is going, ah, but they're trying to persuade you it's okay, you know you're dealing with something false, not true. 2 Timothy 4.3 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. This may happen today with some of you. I hope not, but it may. It's probably happening in churches all over the world on this day, the Lord's Day, where people are going to walk into a church for some reason, some curiosity, some gravitational pull, some invitation, they're going to sit there, and they're going to listen to the Bible be taught accurately, Lord willing. And they're going to sit there and go, yeah, I don't like that. I don't like what I'm hearing. It just, just kind of rubs me the wrong way. In fact, I have a very strong belief in this, and what I heard today is not this, so I'm, I'm not going to listen. Because it doesn't scratch the itching ear of their particular preference or persuasion. Our job as believers is not to preach a gospel that's easy on the ear, easily adaptable, flexible, fluid, all those things. Just a pure, loving, unwavering gospel. Knowing some people can be uncomfortable with it. They're not uncomfortable with you. They're uncomfortable with the good news. They just don't see how good it is. And so we have to be very aware. There are always new beliefs, and there are always new angles on old beliefs. Let's be clear on something. New and improved isn't always true. Often what is new is not improved. It's a setback. It's going backwards. A lot of times, and typically when you're talking theology and the scriptures, it's not, we're not looking for new and improved. We're looking for old and proved. You want solid theological foundations that have been proven, not new ideas that sound enticing. And so we have to watch out for false teachers, subtle, seductive teachings. Are you 
familiar enough with the Bible, with the Scripture, with the Gospel, to weed out false Gospels and false teaching. Remember what Jesus said. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. They look good, they sound good, they're going to eat you up. And so, it's just a matter of time before a Bible teacher that you like or a friend that you love, someone you admire or look up to and enjoy teaches a distorted gospel. All of a sudden, everybody gets to heaven or nobody goes to hell or they declare that there is no hell. Or maybe like the Judaizers, they add prerequisites to salvation. Or they swing to the other extreme and say there are no prerequisites. You don't have to do anything. Just do you. God's fine with it. Just just to help us, I want to give you eight false gospels that are out there. There's more. Um, But here's just eight, just to make sure we're understanding what a false gospel looks like. This is adapted from a book called Counterfeit Gospels by a guy named Trevin Wax. Notice that all these Gospels are man-centric. They're human-centric, not Christ-centric. Um, here's some of the big ones out there. The Therapeutic Gospel. Christ's death gives us power to reach our potential, to help us feel happy and good about ourselves. The Gospel is just to make you feel good. Therapeutic Gospel, that's a false Gospel. The Moralistic Gospel. Christ's death is to make us better people and to help us have spiritual willpower to be more moral. The Gospel, Christ, is just to make you better, just to make you more moral. no. It was to actually pay for our sin. That's a false gospel. You got the works gospel. We've got to pursue more good deeds than bad deeds to be able to get to heaven. We know that's not correct. The legalistic gospel, salvation and forgiveness are earned through religious rituals and rules. There's the spiritually neutral gospel. As long as we have a sincere faith in a spiritual path of some kind, God will accept us. All spiritual paths lead to God in heaven. That's probably the most common one we experience, right? The prosperity gospel, Jesus wants us to be healthy and wealthy. If we really have faith in Jesus, then we won't be touched by the brokenness of this world. You go preach that gospel in India, the Middle East, parts of Asia, parts of Africa, parts of our own country, and tell me that's a true gospel. No way. The social activist gospel, Jesus died and rose so that we can be social and political activists in our culture. Individuals hearing about the personal work of Jesus is not as important as our efforts to bring social justice and peace to all areas of society. It doesn't mean we don't care about those areas, but that's not the purpose of the gospel. The gospel's a message. There's the labelistic gospel. Dedications to our own subcultural version of Christianity. They all have labels. Conservative, liberal, evangelical. It's usually tied to our political or denominational or racial or gender association. You convince yourself that the only people who understand the Bible and Jesus accurately are those who align with your label, your views, your subculture. It's a false identity. These are false gospels. Which one of those maybe has started to secretly work its way into you and started to be enticing to you? got to be spiritually discerning. And we can do so because we have the crucified Savior, the indwelling Spirit, and the faith and gospel. So some kid tricked me out of an egg full of treats, whatever. I can't go back and change that. But by the grace of God, I'm never going to succumb to a false gospel and a false teaching. 
I'm not going back to what I believed about Christ that was wrong before I knew Christ. No one's going to take away the truth of God's word from my life now. He's given me spiritual discernment. We've got to keep it sharp, though. I hope that you have that same motivation in your life. Remember, every Christ follower can use spiritual discernment to identify false beliefs because God's given us the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. I've got three proposed applications for you today in light of all that you've heard. The first one is celebration. Look, many of you, hopefully all of you here, have a relationship with Christ. You have come to that place where you turn to trusting in Jesus and not yourself. If that's the case, celebrate that. Thank God. Show gratitude. Rejoice in the true gospel that you've grabbed a hold of and believed and received and are operating off of. Like, celebrate that and rejoice in it. The second application would be conversion. The reality is you can sit in a church or watch church online for years and still not believe what God so graciously has provided you to believe to be made right with him. There has to be a moment of conversion where you turn from trusting in whatever else you're trusting in than Christ. And if that's you today, you have a couple options. One, maybe you just want to talk about it some more. We'd love to talk to you about it. Maybe you've heard enough today and over the weeks, like, I I need Christ. I need to take that step. Uh, let, Let me just give you an ABC prayer you can tell God. Simple as this. A, you admit you're a sinner and that you need God. B, you believe in Jesus Christ and his death on this cross and his resurrection from the grave as your sin substitute and victorious Savior. And C, you commit your life to following him. Following Jesus is not so much a decision as it is a lifestyle. It's a change that lives on forever. It's a commitment to follow Christ. If you've never done that, as we're closing in worship, sometime in the next 30 seconds to, you know, four or five minutes here, you can say, God, I admit I'm a sinner. I believe in Jesus Christ and that he died on the cross for my sins and rose. I commit my life to following him, A, B, C. Simple as that. But if you do that, let us know so we can come alongside you and support you and encourage you. Uh, There's a chair with a pocket in it somewhere around you. There's a little card next to it. It looks like this. On the back, there's some options there. Um, I'm placing my faith in Jesus today. I want to speak to somebody, maybe about the conversation we've had. Mark that card. Also, some of us will be up here in the front on the left after service. If you want to have a conversation and follow up in person, we'd love to talk to you to help you take this step of faith. So conversion, celebration. The third application of this is compassion. Not everybody believes the gospel. We don't, we don't come in like a hammer trying to hit them with the truth of the gospel. It takes compassion. We love them authentically, deeply. We pray for them. Talk to, your, talk to God about your friend before you talk to your friend about God. You pray for them. And if they're willing, you have respectful, challenging, loving conversations about your spiritual paths, your spiritual views, in a loving way, compassionate, not antagonistic. Which one of those applications fits best for you today? Do you just need to celebrate and rejoice in what God's done for you? Do you need to convert, (laughs) come to Christ? Do you need more compassion? For me, as I studied all this, 
I recognize that I need to keep growing in compassion. Um, man, I, I, I could just be like, hey, look, this is the way it is. <laughs> and I just realized I need to keep growing in compassion for those. They're, they're not being deceptive and ornery and mean. They're, a lot of times they're just confused. They're just lost. And I just need to keep using compassion to reach them. That's what the Lord did in my heart today. What the Lord do in yours? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. Hard teaching, challenging teaching. Your word is so good. But it convicts and it confronts. Help us to respond with humility, openness. Help us to follow after you with all our hearts. Help us not to be enticed away, foolish, (laughs) gullible toward false spiritual teachings. Help us to be spiritually discerning, guided by our Savior, the Holy Spirit, and your word in the gospel. We ask in Jesus' name, we all said together. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.